Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Yes, I I would say that it's not only economic, political, social. I I also see it as a spiritual crisis in that it really goes back to our collective relationship with the earth. Uh, And here there's a fascinating parallel between what Buddhism has always said about our individual predicament and our collective one today. I mean, one way to understand Buddhist teachings is... uh, emphasizing that the the sense of separation, the sense of a separate self that feels separate from other people, separate from the rest of the world, that this is a delusion. It's really important that we not understand Buddhism or any other spiritual path as simply a way to kind of withdraw from the world and find some sort of peace of mind or serenity that's indifferent to what's going on. Rather, what the bodhisattva path emphasizes is, is a, a double-sided practice. On the one hand, we, we continue to work for our own transformation, you know, seeing through the delusions of, of ego and separation. But at the same time, we realize that that's not sufficient, that we also integrate whatever insights may happen in that uh, in terms of becoming engaged and really trying to address the kinds of, you know, larger social and ecological issues issues that we're facing today. I'm very pleased today to welcome David Lloyd to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. David is a professor, writer and Zen teacher with a particular interest in the social implications of Buddhist teachings. David is a prolific author whose essays and books have been translated into many languages. His recent book, Ecodharma, explores how Buddhism can contribute to understanding and responding to the eco-crises we are currently facing. So thank you very much, David, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, Virgil. Good. Well, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you. It's a a new uh, avenue, as it were, of exploration in this podcast, at least, which has mainly had a, a, I won't say technocratic, but a scientific and business and finance and a little bit psychological, but those kind of dimensions looking and looking at this issue, the the environmental crises and so forth that we're facing. And today we're we're going to talk about Ecodharma. Um, title of your most recent book, but maybe just by way of introduction, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and the focus of your work, David? Sure. Um, I'm I'm another refugee from the '60s. I was involved in uh, anti-Vietnam War organizing, but then uh, after that, I sort of dropped out and became aware that it wasn't enough to focus on social change. That I also needed to look at my own personal life and the need for transformation there. So that's really how I got involved in Buddhist practice, especially Zen. And uh, I was fortunate because I also eventually went back to graduate school and got degrees in Asian and comparative philosophy. So I've been very, uh, very lucky in that I've been able to combine a commitment to uh, practice uh, with a career as a professor of, you could say, comparative religious philosophy. And uh, fortunately, that role as a scholar practitioner, I think, has really worked very well for me. And uh, in my work, uh, which may- maybe has become sort of less less academic and tried to become more accessible or more, more popular, um, I've shifted more and more to the social implications of Buddhist and related teachings. And most recently in this last book, Ecodharma, looking at the, um, or exploring what Buddhism has to offer that might help us understand and respond to the ecological crisis. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, also, I, I like at the beginning just to, uh, not, not, not to uh, get too depressing right at the beginning, but just to <laughs> get a sense of what's on your mind. I mean, we're obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic and we face, you know, many interlocking environmental other crises. But what, what in particular is on your mind right now, David? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the pandemic because many people have been pointing out that there is a pretty 
close relationship between that and the ecological uh, crisis in that, uh, you know, we seem to be encroaching on the, the sort of traditional habitat of many species such as bats. And as human population explodes and our imprint expands, I think we, unfortunately we can expect more such pandemics. Since writing the Ecodharma book, I, I suppose my attention is focusing more, not just on Buddhism, but sort of the, the challenge of these interlocking crises that you referred to, the challenge to our sort of religious traditions, because I think they really, those problems, those crises really call for a kind of response that I think our religions have to make if they're to remain relevant in, in the kind of really critical situation we find ourselves in now. Yes, yes. What, what do you think are, is the root of the environmental crisis we're facing? I mean, there, there are many ways you can parse this. We can look at it politically or economically. We can look at it, you know, through a very uh, environmental or scientific lens. Hmm. What do you think about it? Yes, I, I would say that it's not only economic, political, social. I, I also see it as a spiritual crisis in that it really goes back to our collective relationship with the earth. Uh, and here there's a fascinating parallel between what Buddhism has always said about our individual predicament and our collective one today. I mean, one way to understand Buddhist teachings is uh, emphasizing that the, the sense of separation, the sense of a separate self that feels separate from other people, separate from the rest of the world, that this is a delusion. You know, Buddhism teaches this, not only a delusion, but it's a delusion that causes suffering. And then Buddhist practices offer us ways, especially meditation, of course, that can help us undo or let go of that sense of separation, which is really a kind of, you know, psychological and social construct. Um, and it just seems so fascinating to me, the parallel between that and our collective human situation now in relationship to the rest of the biosphere. I mean, it does seem quite ironic that just at this time when we have achieved a truly global civilization, that civilization does seem to be self-destructing. And I think if I have to look for the root, I think it's that we feel separate from the earth. We feel therefore that our well-being is separate from the rest of the earth. And of course the, uh, the tragedy is that it's not. If the earth gets sick, we get sick and, and so forth. So in, from that perspective, it seems pretty clear that the ecological crisis is a spiritual one as well, really calling for a kind of, I don't know, collective maturation. Uh, you know, it, it's almost as if the earth is telling us, uh, you know, grow up or get out of the way. Yes, right. You mentioned delusion. At the heart of your work, uh, this idea of lack, or, or you talk about separation, that this idea, this, this sense of separation, this sense of lack that you, you talk about that, that plagues in a way, or a huge source of suffering. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about that uh, before we go into uh, some of the environmental questions, looking at that from a Buddhist perspective? Sure. Uh, you know, Unlike the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam in particular, uh, where, th where the focus is really good versus evil, for, for Buddhism, it's really delusion versus wisdom or ignorance versus awakening. And at the heart of that problem, as I said before, is this delusion of a separate self. But because that separate self is, is a delusion, because in more contemporary terms, we can say it's a it's a psychological and social construct. It, it, it means that our sense of separate self, insofar as it feels separate, is inherently ungrounded. It doesn't have any reality of its own. It's based, you know, the self is basically composed of mostly habitual ways of thinking and feeling and acting and reacting and so forth in the way that they mutually reinforce each other. Uh, and so the way I think we normally experience that, that lack of groundedness is as a sense of lack, by which I mean the sense that, you know, something is wrong with me, something is missing, something isn't quite right about me, or, or I'm not good enough. And, and in fact, I think it's kind of one of the great open secrets of life. We all have this to some degree, but we don't realize that everyone else does as well. 
The problem occurs when we don't really understand what's going on and we externalize the lack. We think that what we're lacking is something outside ourselves. So, so often we're conditioned to think, oh, my lack is I don't have enough money or I'm not famous enough or my partner isn't good enough or, or I don't have enough consumer toys. Uh, in so many ways, our lives become preoccupied with finding, grasping at that outside ourselves, which we hope can fill up that sense of lack at our core, and it doesn't work. And the fascinating thing for me, alluding back to what we were talking about a moment ago, is this question, well, if we also have this parallel, this, th this collective sense of separation from the earth, do we also have a collective sense of lack? And I think we do. I think it's our, our uh, sort of preoccupation with uh, economic and technological progress so that, you know, it's as if we're trying to self-ground ourselves there. And yet uh, it's, it's like we, we never really achieve what we're, what we're looking for there. So, yes, yes. It's very interesting because you've written about this, looking at, I guess, this, this, how this sense of lack has manifested in history over time. And it's kind of looking almost like a lens using, using this, the, these ideas of separation of lack uh, playing out in history. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe just situate where you think we are. Is this just a recurring theme or has it got different kind of flavors, different, does it change over time? Or are we just repeating the same kinds of things historically? Mm -hmm. So you're referring to uh, a book I wrote some years ago called A Buddhist History of the West, which you know, basically argues that uh, this sense of lack, although it's, it's, it's largely perennial, I mean, it's, it's there haunting us, how we have understood it has been very different at, at different times. So, for example, when you have a very Christian culture, I mean, say, say the Middle Ages in Europe, the, the predominance of Christianity meant that it gave us an explanation for our sense of lack. You know, we've sinned. We have, and we inherit the consequences of the original sin of Adam and Eve. And the church, of course, gives us a way not only to understand where our lack comes from, but it also gives us ways to sort of address it. If we do what the church says, then, you know, we'll, we'll go to heaven after we die. What happens, though, in the modern world when that religious explanation no longer seems so convincing or, or so powerful, uh, in, in a more secular world, I, I think we have to find ways to of, you know, fill up our sense of lack here and now rather than believing that it'll all be taken care of after we die. And so that's why I referred to things like money or, or fame. I mean, I think in the modern world, frankly, uh, the, the most uh, popular religion, to be honest, is, is consumerism. I mean, if a religion tells us, you know, what's really important about the world, how to live in the world, for the most part, I think that's what it does, you know, for those of us who have enough money that we can play that game. And so the way we understand our sense of lack can change, but I think it is a kind of perennial theme haunting us uh, throughout history. The other thing worth mentioning is that in a more communal society where you have, say, tighter extended families and villages, that, that sense of interdependence, I think, uh, really helps a lot. But when you get a more individualistic culture, such as we have today, where, you know, we're, we're basically thrown back upon ourselves, it's, it, therefore, we have not only a, a stronger sense of separate self, but I would say a stronger sense of lack, a stronger sense of of, of something bothering us, something haunting us. Uh, you mentioned interdependence there, and, and that must certainly be something that people are thinking about or, or realizing or experiencing more today with the virus crisis and, and which, you know, we're, there is this interconnection and, and, and this kind of globally as well, I guess. Um, now, can you maybe explain what, what, what you mean by eco-dharma and I guess more broadly, uh, what you alluded to at the beginning is is how you how you think Buddhist thinking can contribute to our understanding and and responding to the eco crisis we're facing. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So e eco dharma is a is actually a new term for a new development in the Buddhist tradition. Uh, as far as I know, the first person to talk about it was uh, Guyapati, 
who was the founder of the Ecodharma Center in uh, Northeast Spain, up in the Pyrenees there. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about Buddhism is the way that it has transformed as it has spread um, even throughout Asia and all the more so now that it's uh, gone beyond Asia to, to the rest of the West of the, to, to the rest of the world. And, and this kind of fits in with basic, basic Buddhist teachings. You know, Buddhism emphasizes impermanence. It emphasizes insubstantiality, that everything is sort of connected to everything else, which means that as Buddhism has spread, it has adapted, it has changed its way of talking, uh, all of it in the, with the goal of finding the ways that speak best, that resonate best with different people at different times and help them on their spiritual path. Um, so, I mean, I think we need to remember that the kind of situation we face today, even if even if we just focus narrowly on, say, the environmental or the ecological side, you know, this wasn't something that the Buddha or his contemporaries or indeed any of the other Buddhist traditions in Asia had to deal with, right? The Buddha lived maybe 2,400 years ago in Iron Age India, and obviously they didn't have these problems with... Uh, you know, uh, carbon emissions and uh, extinction event and so forth. So it, it's not the case that we can simply go back to the original teachings, say the Pali Canon or the Mahayana Sutras, and sort of read off what we can do about uh, how we should respond. But rather what I think Buddhism offers is there are a number of sort of implications. Uh, I don't know if you want to call them hints or or directions that one can explore. And I think given the creativity that Buddhism emphasizes, I think it's sort of very true to the tradition to, to explore these. And, and I've already mentioned one very briefly, this fascinating parallel that I see between our individual predicament and our collective predicament today, the, the sense of separation and a separation that causes dukkha suffering or dissatisfaction, that's at the core of both. Um, the the other one that I would, th that I talk about a lot, the other sort of implication is the idea of the bodhisattva path, or as some people do uh, now uh, talk about the, the ecosattva path. Um, the basic idea of the Bodhisattva path in, in Asian Buddhism, especially sort of Northeast Asia, is that we shouldn't be concerned to wake up uh, simply for ourselves, uh, enlightenment, liberation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it shouldn't be self-preoccupied, especially that's kind of self-contradictory if the whole point of waking up is to realize our non-separation from other people and also to realize the suffering that follows from when we're you know, self-obsessed or self-preoccupied. So the idea of the Bodhisattva is that somebody is devoted not simply to their own awakening, but to helping everyone else awaken as well. And the way that that, that plays out now, I think, is, is the notion that it's really important for us, especially important today, given the incredible situation we're in here, uh, I mean, I'm thinking of Noam Chomsky, who recently pointed out that this is the most dangerous time ever in the history of humanity. Uh, and it's true, I can't think of a more dangerous one. But in in this context, it's really important that we not understand Buddhism or any other spiritual path as simply a way to kind of withdraw from the world and find some sort of peace of mind or serenity that's indifferent to what's going on. Rather, what the Bodhisattva path emphasizes is, is a, a double-sided practice. On the one hand, we, we continue to work for our own transformation, you know, seeing through the delusions of, of ego and separation. But at the same time, we realize that that's not sufficient, that we also integrate whatever insights may happen in that uh, in terms of becoming engaged and really trying to address the kinds of, you know, larger social and ecological issues issues that we're facing today. So in a way, I think that's one of the major places where our religious traditions have to go. Too often, they have emphasized what you might call cosmological dualism. They've emphasized, you know, the goal is to transcend or escape the world, maybe after we die. And even in traditions like Buddhism, there's a lot of talk about, um, uh, you know, 
withdrawing from the world. And I think it's really just the opposite now. We, we have to ask what it is that Buddhism has to offer that, that can help us engage with the world. That, that's the challenge, not, not just for Buddhism, but I think for all of our religious traditions. That's very interesting because I, I guess many people will associate Buddhism with, you know, meditation and, and you know, that kind of uh, private practice. And, and clearly there is a long tradition also of the teachings about, about the illusory nature of the world. Um, mm. And presumably, you know, you mentioned uh, the time of the Buddha, but over the history of Buddhism the, over the last you know, couple of thousand years, there's been all kinds of crises. There have been wars with world wars. Is there not a sense in which, you know, these are what, what I guess what they call samsara, samsaric ailments. So these are, this is the nature of samsara. This is it. And in a way, the, the, the teaching is to, to see in a way that, that, that the delusory nature of the suffering, that it, in a sense that it's, it doesn't really exist. It's not truly present as the idea of emptiness you talk about in the book. But uh, as you say, that doesn't really lend itself to uh, a more than individual approach. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting when you go back to the earliest teachings, the, the earliest records we have of what the Buddha said, it's pretty clear that he was a lot more progressive than the institution that developed after he died. I mean, if you look at his attitude toward women, right? I mean, at that time in India, I mean, you know, women were, their situation was very poor, as you can imagine. And yet he created a, a sangha, a community, a monastic community for women with the, the understanding that women had the same basic nature, had the same potential to awaken as men. You know, that, that was pretty radical for his day. And the same thing about caste. Um, when you joined the Buddhist orders, you lost your caste. You weren't even allowed to talk about caste. So all of that points, in my mind, to... And, and understanding of sort of social relations and, and the suffering that can be caused by social structures. But after the Buddha died, I mean, to be frank, uh, all of the Asian traditions, Asian Buddhist traditions, they reverted to patriarchy, uh, which was still very strong in the society. And they are still largely patriarchal, to be, to be quite frank about it. And, and in terms of caste, too, it's quite interesting. I think in order for the Buddhist cult, because that's kind of what it would have been at the beginning, in order for that cult to survive and thrive, it had to be careful, right? None of those early societies was democratic. They needed tolerance and hopefully, you know, material support from rulers like kings. And so Buddhism, the way it developed, it didn't talk about social reform. It didn't certainly didn't talk about social revolution. What it tended to focus on then was the dukkha, the suffering due to my own individual actions. And you know, you you had this this teaching of karma. And 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 I think frankly this was a bit of a distortion, but this is the way the Buddhists developed, uh Buddhism developed that if there's any suffering in my life, uh well, I shouldn't blame anyone else. It's because of my own karma. It's because of what I did in the past, maybe in past lifetimes, as people often understood it. And if somebody is born a prince and becomes a king, well, they must have really good karma, and we should basically follow along. So what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is I think Buddhism had a potential that wasn't developed in Asian Buddhist societies that were undemocratic and where Buddhism had to be rather careful in order to survive at all. But now that Buddhism comes to the West, or perhaps I should say the modern world, uh, where, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, at least in principle, these these are here, uh, it, it allows us to sort of rethink some of these basic understandings about dukkha. And I think our, our present situation, which is so dangerous in so many ways, it, it requires that. It really asks us, how does something like Buddhism and indeed other religions, how, how can they respond appropriately to this kind of challenge? And I, and I really think we need to outgrow the kind of emphasis on escape or transcendence so that we sort of turn our are back on the social world. For me, my understanding of the Buddhist path is that it, it, it has the two sides. 
it, it means, you know, for me personally, meditation, um, integrating the insights that come from that into how I actually live and how I actually engage with other people and indeed with the world. And so this requires working together with other people to um, find ways to address what I would call institutional challenges. Um, yes, yes. I'd like to talk about that in a moment. Let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. As you say, uh, Buddhism is multifaceted. It's evolved in so many directions and so many uh, traditions, I suppose. Presumably there are a, a couple or, or at least one that has over time maintained maybe some kind of what you might call more socially engaged Buddhist practice, would you say? Um, mostly in the modern world, to, to, to be quite frank. Uh, uh, we have some very good examples. Uh, there's the International Network of Engaged Buddhists in, based in Southeast Asia, in Bangkok, and they've been doing very good work. But to, to be frank, I think they're, they're influenced by the modern West. You know, the, When I think about the Abrahamic religions, when I think about the Bible, for example, it's the, the prophetic tradition of the prophets who would sort of go and challenge and criticize kings who weren't doing what God wanted them to, uh, you know, I think that this is something that has been really important in the history of the West and the modern world as far as us, you know, as far as encouraging uh, concern for social justice and, and social transformation. I think for the most part, this is something that Buddhism has been learning from the West. But as, as I've tried to point out, I think it fits in really well because the fundamental Buddhist concern is, is dukkha and suffering. And therefore, uh, I mean, the Buddha said all he had to teach was dukkha and how to end it. And I think this development is very important for understanding the ways in which dukkha suffering is is being created in, in the modern world. Is there a sense that there's a kind of teaching there, which is in, in, in the Buddhist tradition, that life, life is like a dream in some sense? Is the idea of getting involved in, you know, worldly affairs, you know, there's uh, all kinds of inequality going on, being perpetuated, there's all kinds of problems in the world that need to be, that really, you know, from a humane perspective, the, the cruelty to animals, it's just, it's, it's endless. Is there not a sense that those kinds of ailments, those kinds of sufferings, those kind of injustices are ailments? And, 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 and does that, what, what, what happens then? <laughs> you know, well, let, let's go back to what you were saying about understanding the world as a dream. I mean, that, that, that can be misunderstood. It's like, if it's a dream, then you can go ahead and walk out in front of that bus, right? Uh, it's it's more the idea that we experience the world in a certain kind of way and we take that for granted as the way the world really is and what i think buddhism is really pointing out is is that you know ra rather than understanding it as 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 a dream world in in our usual nighttime sense it's it's much more that our usual way of experiencing is in fact a result of our conditioning. I think language has, has a big role to play here. And, you know, so we have learned to see the world in a certain type of dualistic way. And as a result of Buddhist practice, it can help us experience the world in a different way, in a more non-dual way. And as Buddhists would say, realizing the sense in which it's empty, but that can be misunderstood, you know. Emptiness can be taken, oh, it's not, not important, it doesn't matter. Whereas the essential teaching is more understanding that nothing has any 
separate reality that everything is interconnected and deeply dependent upon everything else. So in, in a way, that that's the understanding and the teaching that I think leads to the kind of in-social engagement that, that is needed today. You're certainly right that the, you know, the the degree of suffering in the world is immense, right? It's enormous. And it's not as though we're going to be able to relieve it all, even though that there's a kind of vow to sort of do what we can in that direction. But it's more that this this is kind of the Buddhist answer to the meaning of life. Once we overcome the delusion of of, of separation, you know, and this kind of self-preoccupation, what's in it for me? Once we can let go of this sense of separate self and realize our connectedness, realize that my well-being is not separate from your well-being, then how do we want to live in the world? And the point is, naturally, we will want to live in a way that makes the world better for everyone, including myself. And there's many, many different ways to do that, of course, according to our situation and the kind of person we are. But I think that, in a way, is the Buddhist, in fact, I see it as the wonderful Buddhist answer to this whole question about meaning and, and what do I want to do with my life. Uh, so it, it's it's not as though I expect or anyone expects to sort of solve all, all the world's suffering and yet doing what I can by myself and also with other people to find, you know, to work on some of those deep causes, both individual and collective. Uh, that, that seems to me the way forward. That, that's the way that I want to live anyway. Wonderful. Maybe can you relate the, the Lotus Sutra uh, uh, story, which, which you do in, in the book, uh, which I guess is a kind of maybe a version of the prodigal son, or I just thought it was quite illustrative of, of that balance or that, that uh, journey, maybe that the, the Buddhist doesn't just necessarily just stay in his cave, as it were. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's interesting that not only do we have a prodigal son version in, in the New Testament, but we also have one in Buddhism, as you say. Uh, and, and there's some striking differences between them, right? In the New Testament version, this parable that Jesus um, tells, you know, the, the prodigal son sort of takes his inheritance, goes out, wastes it, and then kind of crawls back home. But he's welcomed, uh, you know, fully by the father and all is forgiven. Um, in the case of the Lotus, Ver Lotus Sutra version, it's a little more complicated. And frankly, I think so somehow psychologically astute because more or less the same thing happens uh, except that the father moves on. And so the connection between the father and son is lost. And when the son is sort of wandering around in despair, uh, he actually ends up uh, at the gates of the father's mansion, and uh, but he doesn't recognize the father, doesn't realize, and and when the but the father recognizes him, but it's not simply a matter of welcoming home. It's a matter that the the son he needs to mature, he needs to grow, he needs to develop, in order to become the heir of the father. So, in this lovely story, you know. The, the son is initially afraid, but then the, um, the father sends out some of his workers to sort of offer him a job. And slowly the son works his way up until he becomes the steward. And at the end of his life, only then does the father announce to the world and to the son that this is his son. And, and the idea there is that the this is the destiny for all of us, that we all have this potential to, to become Buddhas, that Buddhahood is our real natural state. But we have to develop ourselves in order to not just realize that, but to embody and incorporate it into how we actually live, into how we actually relate with other people. And so I see that as an essential story for the kind of challenge that we face today. A very powerful image and story. Now, we talked a little bit about religious traditions, and I, I guess in Western religion, man seemed to be in, have dominion over the earth and so forth. How have Eastern spiritual thinkers, or maybe just focus on, on, on Buddhism particularly, thought about this relationship between man and the earth? And, and is that important? 
Mm, I think it is. Uh, let's expand it beyond Buddhism uh, to India in general. I mean, it's interesting. And, and I think geography may play a role here. Um, you know, if you think of the Abrahamic tradition sort of evolving in the, in the deserts of the Middle East uh, versus India, where you have these lush rainforests, uh, you know, teeming with many different species, um, th there's much more of a sense in not only Buddhism, but I think many of the Indian traditions that the emphasis is not on human beings, uh, as sort of superior to the rest of creation, right? I mean, if you think about um, the the first book of the Bible, Genesis, you know, we are the last created. Humans are the last created in the image of God, and we're sort of given uh, stewardship or overlordship of all the others. In the case of India, there there's much more a sense that we are part of a larger community of of sentient beings of of living beings and so that huge gap between us and other creatures is not emphasized in the same way and in fact it's interesting in the in that bodhisattva path that i was talking about earlier uh, we have this bodhisattva vow in zen where we sort of vow you know not just to help other humans wake up, but actually to help all living beings, all sentient beings wake up. So there, so there's much more of a sense of continuity with the rest of creation in 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 Buddhism and the other Indian traditions. Now, talking about this way, social engagement, becoming engaged with 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 issues, with with environmental issues, with with social change. You talk a little bit maybe about power relations. I didn't see so much about that in the book, you know, and uh, I guess looking at it through a different lens, some people would, would observe that we're living in a particular state of, you know, capitalism right now, some version of neoliberalism with extreme power, inequality, and so forth. And, you know, what, what, what would a, an ecosatva do about that? I mean, you, you've had a, how, how do you draw the line in terms of social engagement? You know, we've got these pipeline crises in, in, in America and Canada with the indigenous people and so forth. And, and, you know, if one extreme is the sitting in one's cave, as it were, you know, uh, meditating and so forth, you know, where do you draw the line in terms of different kinds of, of ways of expressing, of, of trying to create social change? Hmm, hmm, hmm. Well, you know, there, there's a lot of things the book didn't talk about, right? The book didn't talk about, I mean, again, we're referring to the Ecodharma book here. It didn't really talk about patriarchy. It didn't really talk about racism in any, uh, to, to any real degree. And yet, of course, these things are very much interconnected, especially if you're going to talk about capitalism and how it, uh, you know, sort of takes advantage of, of both both of those in, in, in different ways. Uh, curiously, I'm uh, just this evening, uh, I'm finishing along with another teacher, uh, a 13-week course on Ecodharma. And a lot of that has been devoted to exploring the relationships with other social issues, especially racism, which of course is, 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 a, is a huge issue. You know, going back to what, what Buddhism has, has traditionally said, I mentioned earlier that the Buddha didn't talk about good versus evil. He did talk about what are sometimes called the three poisons or the three fires, or and sometimes we even talk about them now as the three roots of evil. He, he talked about greed, uh, ill will, and delusion. And the basic idea there was that when what we do is motivated by any or all of these three, then dukkha tends to result, you know, some suffering, some on some dissatisfaction, uh, some unfortunate state of affairs. I think one of the really important implications today, you know, as we ask what is the relevance of Buddhism to our situation, I think it's really important to see how it is that those three poisons have been institutionalized, by which I mean they're not just a matter for individual concern. But actually, we have social structures that tend to take on a life of their own. I mean, consider greed. I mean, if if greed means you never have enough, I think that's a pretty good description of late capitalism. 
Not only consumers, consumers never consume enough, but if you think about corporations, I mean, they're never profitable enough, their market share never big enough, their stock price never big enough, collective GNP or GDP never big enough. Uh, this, this need for growth, if one isn't going to collapse, is, is a serious uh, aspect, uh, all the more so given that that need for growth, of course, is, is affecting, damaging the earth so much. But as I like to ask, uh, um, why is more and more always better if it can never be enough? The, the problem with institutionalization is that it's not simply dependent on, say, the motivations of individual people, but that it, by taking on a life of its own, it means that these institutions actually end up using us. I mean, as a quick example, supposing the CEO of ExxonMobil wakes up one morning and he's had some kind of revelation and he realizes, and I say he because it's usually he, right? But he, but he realizes that, um, you know, we have to shift as quickly as possible to renewable sources of energy because of the danger of, of carbon emissions. Well, here's the interesting thing. This CEO may be the single most important and powerful person in that huge corporation. And yet, if what he tries to do damages profits or is likely to affect profits, he will probably lose his job pretty quickly. You know, the, the, the institution, the corporation uses people like that. And uh, so that's what I mean by the institutionalization. And, and what that requires, interestingly, I think, is likewise when you have activists or, or when we look at, say, the Buddhist tradition, and ask how that might respond there, I think that also emphasizes the kind of social dimension that it's not enough for individual Buddhist practitioners to try to be good bodhisattvas, but in order to address those kinds of institutionalized problems in a meaningful way, uh, you have to sort of work together with, with other people in, in organizations. Um, I mean, I think there's something comparable with uh, I was referring to the three poisons. The, the second one, ill will, well, I think a pretty good example of that, at least in the United States, is our militarism, right? I mean, if you measure by the amount of resources we devote to it, the it's extraordinary. Yeah, by far the most militarized in, in human history. Uh, and uh, the tragedy, too, if you spend all that much in, on money on your military, well, you're going to have to use it once in a while. You're going to have to find someone to bomb or to fight. And again, these sorts of things become self-perpetuating. Um, institutionalized delusion, I think, again, the media, long before the kind of fake news that Trump was talking about, you know, the fact that the media, at least here in the United States, they are almost without exception in private corporations that are concerned, you know, to make money. They're not really primarily interested in educating and informing us. They're more concerned about finding ways to grab our eyeballs and sell them to the highest bidder because it's the advertising where they make their, where they make their money. And so what it means, of course, is that the media tend to end up uh, sort of, consciously, unconsciously sort of reinforcing the kind of consumerist corporate system we have nowadays, rather than asking the really important questions about the role of late capitalism in, in creating the kinds of problems we have today. So, I mean, th those are three examples of how the three poisons have been institutionalized and how I think Buddhism Buddhism's analysis needs to be sort of developed or updated in a way that can begin to engage with them. Yeah, very interesting. And ecodharma is is part of that. And and you lay out some, you know, uh, draw these ideas together very very cogently. But what is the state, would you say, of of, of ecodharma thinking? It's it's a fairly new idea, as you say. Um, there are some examples around the world. Are there one or two things you'd point to or be able to give a sense of how it's evolving or unfolding? Hmm, good question. The, as, as I think I mentioned earlier, the, the first Ecodharma center, in fact, as far as I know, they, they uh, sort of first used the term, is the one in Northeast Spain founded by Guyapati. 
And, and I think they're a marvelous example because they're also, you know, exploring the relationships between environmental destruction and issues such as patriarchy and racism and, 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 and so forth. Uh, interestingly, in, in my experience, though, it's, it's been a slow development. Uh, now things are sort of picking up. But I have to say there were several years when there was not a great deal of interest in, in these kinds of concerns. Uh, and frankly, I think it's because we in the West have tended to simply adopt the Asian model where the focus is on one's own individual peace of mind and awakening. And I suppose that's understandable, right? We want to make sure that we do it right, that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater and all that. And so uh, I think the first generation of Buddhism in the West has been concerned to make sure that you know, we, we have the teachings and we understand them. And it's only now, I think, that people are really getting to the point where we can ask these fundamental questions about how Buddhism can and indeed must change uh, in response to the challenges that we're all facing today. But it's been slow, I have to say. The only gratifying thing there is, I think, with, with the book and uh, in the last few years, there's a lot more interest within the Buddhist world. And, uh, and that's, so I'm quite encouraged. It's also worth mentioning, along with some uh, Buddhist teacher friends here in Colorado, where we have co-founded the Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center, which is uh, up, up in the Rocky Mountains, about a half an hour uh, from North Boulder. And what we've been doing there, uh, we have three buildings on about 180 acres of pristine uh, natural land, you know, with um, lot, lots of trees and a little river and rocks and meadows and so forth. And what we've been developing is, uh, you know, trying to sort out, I mean, ecodharma is, is such a new term. What does it mean? How would you teach ecodharma? And uh, so we've been, you know, focusing on that. One aspect that's been very important is helping people get in touch with their grief. Because I, I, I think the reality is for, for those of us paying attention to what's going on, there's a lot of grief, sort of, repressed, suppressed about what we see happening. And yet we so often feel powerless about how to do something about it. And, and, and sometimes grief, you know, naturally can lead to despair. And, and, and what we're finding is with the kind of retreats that we're doing, where we spend a lot of time outside meditating outside, meditating as the Buddha did sort of under trees uh, next to uh, a, a stream and so forth, and then helping each other get in touch with this grief, there's something extraordinarily uh, empowering about it. Uh, so that people, you know, at the end of one of these retreats, they, they, they feel somehow by, by, by getting in touch with what they've been feeling, they, they, um, it, it opens a lot of doors that they were unable to go through before. Wonderful. You mentioned ecosatva, and presumably that's it's it's not just an idea for a practicing Buddhist, as it were, a version of Buddhism. Presumably, we can all, in some way, learn from this or, or become more like an ecosatva in some sense. I'm just wondering what, whether you have one or two suggestions or ideas or, or ways in which we can become more like that. Well, you know, as as I was saying earlier about the situation for the Buddha in Iron Age India. I mean, because of that, it, it's not as though we can go back to any of the Buddhist texts or teachings and sort of read off in a very simple way what it is that we should be doing. I mean, I think that that the Bodhisattva or Ecosattva path has a great deal to tell us about sort of how we do what we do, but it doesn't give us specific answers. And And in that way, I think depending on who we are, depending on our situation, depending on where our heart is being pulled, there's a number of different options, right? People end up doing very different things. Um, I have a good friend here who's actually another Zen teacher. Um, he's, he's a retired banker, so he goes to Congress and he knows how to you know, speak to sometimes quite conservative people there and you know, work for a carbon tax. Uh, other friends uh, been very helpful to 
me and my wife as far as uh, reducing our carbon footprint, getting solar panels, a solar car, and so forth. Which, by the way, I want to emphasize, you know, the, that's far from sufficient, but I see that as, as, as playing a, a role. Um, and then some other people, including me, you know, I, I have a history of sort of uh, direct action or nonviolent resistance. And I think that that's really part of the equation as well uh, in that, you know, it's not going to be enough, I think, to, to simply sort of lobby Congress. I think it's pretty clear that things like Extinction Rebellion, such as I've been a part of here in, in, in Colorado, the, these movements uh, where we're actually willing to sort of go out in the streets and put our bodies on the line in a uh, nonviolent way to sort of really emphasize the, the importance of, of, of changing things. I think these are important, but I guess what I'm pointing to is the, the fact that all three of these, and indeed, no doubt, many, many other types of actions are, are going to be necessary in order to, uh, you know, have any hope of turning things around. A lot to be done. A lot to be done, David. What, what's next for you? Uh, well, it's a good question. I mean, the whole, um, you know, this year has changed a lot of things for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I'm old enough to be sort of high risk. So uh, the Extinction Rebellion, which I was very involved with uh, the, the last couple of years, we, we've sort of uh, ha had to be very careful and, and not a lot's been happening there. Uh, I'm doing a lot of teaching online, most of it eco-dharma, but I'm also working on another book, which is sort of trying to understand more deeply where the kinds of ecological problems have come from. In particular, I'm very fascinated by evolutionary psychology uh, and um, the, the implications of that. And again, the implications of that for the role of religion and, and how religion has sort of responded to some of the problems that evolutionary psychology has created for our species so a combination of of writing and teaching and once things open up again probably a bit more direct action on the streets as well well i wish you the very best with all your initiatives with your research with your work and thank you so much for sharing with us today your very distinctive and and, and pioneering thinking and inspiring work as well well thank you fergal for this opportunity i really appreciate it if you like what you heard today on the Sustainability Agenda, we think you'll enjoy Roman Krisnarek's thought-provoking new book, The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World, which explores how we need to expand our time horizons to become good ancestors and plan and take action that will resonate over the coming decades, centuries. Available online and in all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.